If you have a Bible with you, would you go to uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 23. Maybe it's uh, on your phone or your iPad or you have a hard copy. And if you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back for you. There's uh, Bibles on that back table. I'd love for you to take a copy of God's Word with you when you leave this morning. Luke chapter 23. I'd like to bookend what we're doing with prayer. Pray with you at the beginning and at the end, so I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. Father, we do declare that you are awesome. You are holy. And, and our words fall short. That's the best we have. And so we put them to music and we lift them up and we fill our lungs with the very air you gave us to breathe. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us. So we come to your word now and we, we ask that you would work through your word to reveal more of who you are and help us to understand who we are in relation to that. God, you, you promised that your word is life and that it brings life, and so we ask that you would do that now. I pray for those who are believers here this morning. I pray for those who are not yet believing. I pray for those watching online. God, for all of us, take us to this place where we understand what the throne of grace looks like. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been working our way um, through the book of Romans for two years, actually, if you're new to New Hope. Um, we started in June of 2016 in Romans chapter 1, and um, last Sunday we finished Romans chapter 9. That was a big deal. Glad for that. I know, inside you're celebrating quietly, right? Um, somebody asked me if we were going to be done with Romans before we're in the new building. No, we're not. Um, it's not possible. There's like two years left in the book of Romans. But hey, I know of a guy It took 16 years to take his church through Romans. So give me some grace here, all right? Um, we're, we're finding Romans to be just an extraordinary study. But here's what I would like to encourage you if you're new to New Hope. We never want you to feel like you just stepped into the middle of a movie, right? It, it, it doesn't feel good when that happens. You're like, I'm not sure what's going on here. I think you would find as you come to each study with us in the book of Romans that each component stands completely on its own. However, if you wanted to get caught up really, really fast in the book of Romans, I can sum it up for you in one word. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? One word, I think, encapsulates the entire book of Romans, and I would say it's the word grace. It's all about the grace of God. You find Paul constantly talking about the grace of God all over throughout the book of Romans. He emphasizes it in many ways. Let me just give you three examples this morning, and we'll see if you agree. First one comes from Romans 5, 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's grace. Amen, new hope? Okay, that's grace. What about this one, Romans 5.8? God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. For everyone, according to Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the grace of God. Perhaps, perhaps you're thinking, that needs to be fleshed out. What does that actually look like? I need to understand that better. Especially if you're new to the Bible, you might be thinking, I'm not sure I understand what you're getting at, Mark. Well, to amplify that, if that's what you're thinking, you're really in luck this morning because we get to look over the shoulder of Dr. Luke, and he lived in the first century, and he wrote the book of Luke, and that's why I asked you to go to Luke chapter 23, and he writes what I consider to be 
the most amazing grace story in all of the world. You won't find a greater grace story in the Bible. As we go to Luke chapter 23, I'm going to invite you to go with me to verse 32. And we pick up the details of what's going on in the final hours of Jesus' life. Verse 32 says this, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him, and immediately you know he's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And we find out there's two other guys with him. And the word criminal is found also in your notes this morning in the Greek language, and you see it on the screen. There's a couple words that represent this. Represent this, And the very first definition we find is kind of a generic term, an evildoer, a male factor. So we got two criminals who, according to the Bible, are really wicked guys. And if you go into the next word you're going to see in just a moment, these guys are not just petty thieves. These are thugs. This is what most people in society would call a lowlife or a scoundrel. The word that's the base word for this description is the word kakos. And you see it in your notes, and you see it on the screen. And it says they're intrinsically worthless. How do we understand that? Well, somebody who is of this category was an individual who not only robbed and would steal, but they took delight in torturing their victims and many times leading to their death. So they were abusive people, violent career criminals. If you want to put the pieces together, you just think of the individual who was supposed to be on the center cross that day. you got a thief on the left and a thief on the right, but there's a guy missing because Barabbas is supposed to be there. He's on the crucifixion schedule. The Romans know they're going to put three guys up there. But Barabbas is missing, and the Bible says he's a known murderer. He's one of the Kekos, the Karukos. And he's not there because God's on the move and God's son is there instead. Go with me to the next verse, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals on the right and the other on the left. Keep going, verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. I don't know if you've ever circled that in your Bible before. If you have your own Bible with you, you might want to do that. And this especially plays into where we're going with this story. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Verse 35, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now watch, the soldiers join in. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. The specific reason that the soldiers turn on him, we're not told. We're not given clarity. Perhaps it's just because he's Jewish. And therefore, he has this label hanging above his head, the king of the Jews. We don't really know why, but what we do know is this scene begins to unfold at 9 a.m. in the morning, and almost immediately from the beginning, everyone is sucked into the mockery that's being orchestrated by these leaders of the nation that are there. The people jump in, the soldiers jump in, the leaders are already doing, and they're sneering. I don't know if you've ever had someone sneer at you. I doubt you have in the way that the Bible means it. 
The actual language behind the word sneer means to turn up your nose at. You're disgusting to me. I want nothing to do with you. I don't think you probably had anybody ever do that to you. But now the people jump in, and then the soldiers jump in, and then we find out, as you're going to see in the next verse, even the criminals who are hanging on the left and the right, they begin assaulting and assailing Jesus on the cross. Now check this. They're hanging on a cross also. They're suffering the exact same fate that Jesus is. They're going through the same excruciating agony. And in the midst of that, they find enough ability to assault and hurl abuse at Jesus. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about the commanding power of the presence of sin. That in that moment, they would use their energy for that? I think this is absolutely satanic. It started with the leaders, and then it fed out to the people, and then it moved into the soldiers, and then the criminals pick up on it. How else could that be anything but satanic, what's going on right there? That these guys are using their dying breath to abuse Jesus? Go with me to the next verse, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, the other accounts of this in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, they don't record this story. But what they do pick up on is that the criminals are hurling the abuse, and they actually require that you understand both of them are doing it. Luke only requires one, and there's a reason for that. There's, there's a, a break in the story, and Luke picks up on it. There's something that's changing here. Now, in verse 39, when it says hurled assaults, it doesn't really capture the imagery of what's going on or the seriousness of this. It'd be bad enough to have somebody insult you and constantly throwing at your direction, but the word that's used here in the Bible is actually the word blasphemo. You're familiar with it because you've probably heard the word blaspheme before. It's the other Greek word in your notes. It's the last one this morning. It means to especially speak vile of somebody. When it refers to God, you're talking about defaming God. And anytime someone denies the capacity of Jesus, they're not only mocking him, they're blaspheming God. They're denying Jesus' capacity and power to do what he says he can do. So the taunt is especially bitter. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the big guy? Aren't you the one that has the capacity? He's really sarcastic here. Now, just a side note. In all likelihood, these guys are Jews. At the very least, they live in Jerusalem. They're being executed in Jerusalem for their crimes against the state. Very likely, being in that society, they understand what a Messiah is. And certainly, to live at that period of time, in that day, they've got to have knowledge of Jesus because they talk about Him being the guy, especially after the resurrection of Lazarus. Everybody knows about that. So how remarkable is this, that a career criminal dying the exact same death is not content to ignore the other guy dying next to him, but rather has to bring the abuse against him and joins the crowd and is mocking and launching insults. What I understand is going on here is he's just like many people who are alive today who have spent their life chasing after the things of the world and pursuing that day after day after day the things of the flesh. 
He has no affection for God whatsoever. And so with his last dying breath, he's going after the exact same thing. What's in it for me? What are you going to do for me? If you're the guy, save yourself and bring me with you. That's, that's the kind of doubt he's bringing to this. If you're the guy, how remarkable. I, I know that many of you have a different version, the King James Version, but I want to show you the King James Version on the screen because I think it really captures his statement well. If you be the Christ. If. If you're the Christ. If you be him. What do you mean if? Walk with me through the text, church. Two criminals hanging on the left and on the right next to Jesus. Two hardened men. One on the right, one on the left. Both are about to die. One's going to die to sin, as you're going to see in just a minute. And one's going to die in sin. And that one says to Jesus, if you be the Christ, I don't know if you are, but if you are, bring me along with you. If you're the guy, do something for me. Now, that is incredibly selfish, isn't it? That's incredibly selfish. That's using Jesus for your own ends. That's an individual who's saying, you could be, I don't know, but if you are, that's Christianity on the margins. That's one foot in and one foot out. There's no decision there. That's coming to church one week and not showing up for months. Maybe Christmas and Easter, and that's the best you got. This is, this is an if individual, and only people on the margins use the word if when they're referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no conviction whatsoever there. Now, as time passes, the opposite criminal who's on the right of Jesus, the other one who has equally devoted his life to all kinds of debauchery, you notice in Luke's version of the story, his taunting has gone silent. He's not part of the abuse anymore. And apparently something is pent up inside him, and he can't take it any longer. And so while his body is screaming in incredible anguish, physically being tortured, with a clarity of reality of who Jesus is, he turns on the other criminal and begins to rebuke him. And you gain remarkable insight into human nature Two men, both on their deathbed, both with the capacity to call upon the name of the Lord, and one hardens his heart and one softens his heart. Go to the next verse, verse 40. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong. So you got a, a career criminal, a convict, a convict who knows Jesus is no mere pretender. Have you ever read this story and stopped and asked yourself this question? How could that be that this guy who's lived his life away from God is now hanging on a cross and in that moment... How could he know? How could he recognize that Jesus is who he says he is? What you're looking at here, church, is the activity of the Holy Spirit of the living God. You're seeing it in black and white. The Holy Spirit's capacity to remove the scales from the eyes 
to soften the heart. God has just invaded his life and has slammed him to the ground, just like he did with Paul, knocking him right off from his feet. And that's exactly how salvation works. It may not always be that dramatic. It may not always be that fast. But it is always an overpowering work of God to turn a soul towards him. That's why God says, you can't come to me on your own. It has to be from me. I have to overpower you. Paul writes about that very issue in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He writes to Timothy and he said, Timothy, you, you know about my past? You know that I was a violent man and that I was a blasphemer. And I turned my energies against the church. But God showed me mercy, Timothy. Paul recognizes he's just like this guy. I'm going to ask you to assemble in your mind right now some of the images of the people that you know that Jesus encountered during his years on this planet. Maybe in your mind pops the, the woman who's the prostitute in the street or the woman of Samaria that's at the well or the tax collector who's hiding up in a tree or maybe you think of the demon-possessed man who's in the cemetery. All of these individuals considered to be unreachable by the society that they lived in. They're beyond the margins. They're on the outer edge. Nobody spent time with them or reached out to them. Maybe in your mind pops the guy who's called the prodigal son that Jesus told the story about, who stiff-armed God throughout his adult life, saying, no, I don't want that. That's, that's good for my family, but I don't want to be part of that. Maybe that's where your mind goes is to the prodigal son. Why would I link him with the guy on the cross? Because they've both been wicked. They've both made really bad decisions. But in a moment, there's a transformation that takes place when God invades. And this guy on the cross has moved from blaspheming Jesus Christ himself to now rebuking someone else who is blaspheming God. And there's utter transformation taking place. Let me just walk through it with you. When you read the story, first thing you see is this guy has become utterly aware of God, and therefore he has a fear of God, and the next thing you see him doing is confessing openly his own sin. We deserve this. We're getting exactly what we deserve, but then he declares the perfection of Jesus. Jesus has done nothing wrong. See, these are the responses of someone who has encountered the spirit of the living God working on his own dark heart. I know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about here because you've gone through it yourself. So this criminal who sees the need for Jesus has just confronted the tragic reality of his own life. That's why he's screaming out, don't you fear God? Because he knows what's about to happen to him is far worse than what's currently happening to him. What's happening to him on this planet is nothing in comparison to what's about to happen to him when he stands before God. Jesus spoke to this very same issue, Luke 12, verse 4. Look on the screen. Don't fear those who destroy the body, but fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. Now, from this place of incredible clarity... This guy who's lived as a career criminal all of a sudden has great clarity exactly about who Jesus is, and he has the audacity to speak 
to Jesus. Luke 23, verse 42, and he was saying, this is absolutely incredible, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This may be the very verse that struck me as the most profound, the audacious request, the outrageousness of this to talk with Jesus in this moment because it's this. I know who I am, and I know what I've done, and I know how miserable my life has been, but I know who you are, and I see mercy in you. I see grace in you, so I'm desperate enough to ask. What's he really asking for, church? He's asking for forgiveness. That's what he's really asking for. How is he ever going to make it into the kingdom if he's not forgiven? He has to be forgiven. But ask yourself this question, why is this coming to his mind right now in this moment when he's on the cross and you know about a crucifixion, it asphyxiates someone. Every word is a... You're lifting your chest up as high as you can to get air in your lungs to speak. And in this moment, he's recognizing... Remember me. How is he thinking of that when he's dying for his last breath? Well, just back up in the story and think about what he's just seen. Earlier in Luke 23, it was, Father, forgive them. Forgive these blasphemers. These ones who doubt my capacity, what you can do through me, who I am. Father, forgive them. Now, this guy, he may not know a lot about God. And he may not have a really good theology, but he knows that God is forgiving. Amen, New Hope? So he's asking, can I be one of those? Can I be a recipient of that? He's just heard Jesus ask the Father to forgive, and he's saying, I know what I need. I need the grace of God. Another sidetrack. This guy has come to an enormous understanding of who Jesus is. Here's how I know that. Old Testament individuals did not have a handle on what happens to them when they die. They had images, they had pictures, there were things that were written by King David in the book of Psalms, some things that Isaiah said, they thought they had a concept that you go to a rest, that you go to a place of sleep, and that in the future, way in the future, someday in the distant future, there would be an eternal kingdom, but they didn't really have a good grasp on what happens when you die. They thought they had images, but they're not. Sure. So they talked about the last day as this distant thing. So this one has the audacity to ask, when that day comes, Jesus, when that day arrives, Lord, can, can I be in your kingdom? I know it would be sheer grace on your part. I know it would be absolute mercy, but would you make me part of your kingdom? Please save me from the judgment of God, that I don't have to stand before him in fear. I don't want it because I deserve it. 
Will you save me from that? See, for someone who's a career criminal, this guy has a pretty good Christology. If you're not familiar with the term Christology, it's a theological term, understanding who the Christ is. And this guy, this low life, has a pretty comprehensive Christology because everyone knows that you don't survive a crucifixion. Not just today because we have an understanding of modern science, but everybody living in the first century understood. You do not get down off the cross alive. No one survives a crucifixion. They break your legs to make sure that you're going to die. They run spears through you to make sure you're dead. So this guy has a pretty good Christology because he knows Jesus is going to die. He's on a cross right next to him. He's been beaten and abused severely. They've ripped the beard out of his face. There's no way Jesus is getting out of this. Therefore, he knows, Jesus, this isn't the end of you. You're going to rise again. See, this guy has a pretty comprehensive Christology. He understands this is not the end of this one who's in the middle. Now, it's absolutely the response from Jesus that blows me away. Go to the next verse. Verse 43, and he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. I don't know if you've ever thought about paradise much. It's a Greek word that's borrowed from the ancient Persians, the word paradisio. There's more information probably than you wanted, but here's what's going on there. Um, the ancient Persians in Babylon they had these things called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And when they thought of that place, that absolute park-like setting, they thought of Paradiso. Well, the Greeks just borrowed the term from them and brought it over. And so when Jesus uses this term, he's telling this guy, I'm telling you, today you're going to be in an extraordinary park-like setting, a place beyond your imagination but ask yourself this question because this is bigger than that. Why does Jesus say to him, truly, I say to you? Why does he insert the word truly there? And if you've been at New Hope any length of time, you know that I've said to you over and over and over again that when Jesus says things like truly, truly, he's saying, pay attention. Pay attention because this is a big deal. But when he says truly once, that was used to emphasize the fact that what I'm about to say, you can take to the bank. It's not just pay attention, but this is so guaranteed, you can cash a check with this. So why does Jesus add the word truly here? Because what he's about to say is so hard to believe. This is unimaginable. Because this is the daddy running for the prodigal son and putting a robe on his shoulders and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and saying, come on into full fellowship. You are going to be with me. How do I know that? Because you don't just embrace a wretched sinner who has lived his entire life as a prodigal without the reconciliation. And the prodigal is hanging on the cross next to the son of God sucking air into his lungs just to stay alive, just like Jesus. And you don't do that lightly. See, what Jesus says back to him is even more outrageous than what this guy has just asked Jesus for. Let me ask you this question, church. 
Does he have a right to be with Jesus? No, absolutely not. He has no right whatsoever. He hasn't done anything that would put him in a position to have the right. What has he done to earn this audacious request? And if you're thinking nothing, exactly. He's done nothing. He's done nothing to put himself in a position why God would give him this. This is grace, isn't it, New Hope? Isn't this grace? This is the father wrapping his arms around him, saying, you're my prodigal, welcome home. See, this guy, his life qualified him for hell. And in one moment, God sweeps in and rescues him. And the crazy thing is, the exact same day, he finds himself walking the streets of gold in heaven. And he's the first one. Have you ever thought about that before? The first guy to be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ is a career criminal. He's the first one there. He's like, hello? Hey, am I alone here? Now the angels are there and God's there. Now, theologically, you're struggling with that. I know all the Old Testament saints are swept in at the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus says, this is going to be happening for you. You get to be the first one. And you've spent your life stiff-arming God, but based on the declaration of who I am. Now, I know this is going to mess with some people's theology. I'm not going to apologize for it, but just hear me on this. When Jesus says today, he means today. In other words, there's a recognition here. There is no thought of a purgatory it's not theologically or biblically accurate to say that God's punishing people after they die, before they can get into heaven. There's no degree of punishment that someone has to go through. Jesus says it's here, it's now. And when Jesus says now, he means now. Let me clarify that for you. Is Jesus God? Okay, like 10 of you believe that. Okay. <laughs> Let me back up with you. Say amen if you agree with this. Jesus is God. Okay, we're on the same page. I'm assuming people online right now are saying amen also. God, therefore, is on the cross. God's on the cross, and God has just declared, this day you will be with me in paradise. So the reason he can say that, and he does say that, is because the work that Jesus did on the cross was absolutely complete. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called that. That's why Jesus says, it is finished. That's great news. So Jesus assures this criminal, there's an immediate experience waiting for you because when Jesus enters the picture, there's nothing more to be done. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And when God says it's finished, it's finished. So understand this. Don't complicate it. Just receive it. That promise would not be possible without what happened next. Go to the last two verses. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Unless Jesus died, unless Jesus died for you, you will not enter his paradise with him. Meaning you have to receive what he did. Unless Jesus is acknowledged as Lord and Savior, and you know that he died for you, for your sins, you're like the thief on the left, not the thief on the right. I amplify this for a specific reason. In the last couple of weeks, um, an, an extended friend of a family died. This guy's in his 50s. Died of a massive heart attack. A very successful businessman. Wanted for nothing. Raised in a Bible church. Knew who Jesus is. But recently has said to his family, I know what you say about Jesus. I know who you think God is. But that's not for me. I want nothing to do with that. That guy didn't know that two weeks ago he was going to drop dead of a massive heart attack and he died before he hit the floor. There's no moments on the cross for him waiting to declare who Jesus is in the last moments of his life. Boom, it's over. That's why scripture says don't put this off. Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay what God is offering you. For this reason, all of us are going to stand before God one day, and the books are going to be opened. And when the books are opened for the thief on the cross, when the records of his life are laid bare before the maker of this universe, I think, all of creation, I'd love to watch that, all of creation could pause in that moment and maybe draw a little bit of a breath of, a, what's he going to say about that guy? And Paige... After page, after page, would say, sin, 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 sin. He'll come to the last page of the last day, of the last hour, of the last moments of this guy's life, and there it will be recorded that his name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And because of that, God says, if that's true of you, I remember your sin no more. It's separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Is that not the amazing grace of God, New Hope? That's Romans in a nutshell. That's God. The grace of of the living God toward you. I'm going to praise him right now in prayer on your behalf. Would you join me in that? Father, we do praise you. We praise you with everything that's within us. And, and we're going to do that in just a moment in a song to you because it's the best thing we can do on this planet is put music together and live our lives in such a way that it's a praise back to you. Father, right now in this moment, we're going to fill our lungs with air, the very lungs you created and the air that you gave us because you're worthy of all the praise we can bring back to you. 
thank you. I thank you, first of all, for causing Dr. Luke to write down this amazing story that we get to read about what you did. Thank you, God, for the thief on the cross. It gives all of us so much hope for family members who died without us knowing where they stood with you. It gives us hope for those who are in our social circle, God, that may not yet be confessing you. It's simply by declaring your name and recognizing who you are, you invite us in. Thank you, God, for making it so simple we can understand it. We praise you for all of these things and so many, many more. We praise you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.